Good morning. Morning. Welcome to Cornerstone Church Liverpool again. My name is Paul. Good to see you this morning. Good to see you. We are in Exodus. So if you want to open your Bibles up at Exodus chapter 5 and we're going to jump straight in. So we're going to be in the book of Exodus for about six months. The book of Exodus has 40 chapters. We're actually not going to make our way through every single verse, but what we are going to do is encourage you to read along the book for yourself as we go through it. So each week have a read through. We went out through gospel communities on Friday just to get an idea of what we're going to be preaching this morning. Um, and that will really help you each week just to get a feel for what's, what's going on. Today we're going to move through three chapters. So we're actually going to go through chapter five all the way to, to kind of part way through chapter seven. And we're going to stop along the way just to focus in on some key areas and key verses. If you notice when you open your Bibles up at uh, um, Exodus 5, you'll see that first word is afterwards. So the passage starts today with an afterward. So let me tell you, or start by telling you what happened actually before. So the people of Israel, they are in slavery to the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt. And the ruler of Egypt at this time is, is Pharaoh, who seems to be from the, the, the account here, a bit paranoid, controlling, a fearful tyrant. And he really fears Israel. And so what he does, he tries to, to wipe them out by killing all the baby boys. But an Israelite woman of the tribe of Levi named Jochebad, I think that's how you pronounce it, which actually means God's glory, she hides her son and then she sends him down the Nile in a basket. And by God's providence, he's taken in by Pharaoh's daughter and he's raised in the Egyptian royal house. And when he's 40, a lot later on in the story, he steps in to protect an Israelite slave who's being abused by one of the Egyptians. And he kills the Egyptian, buries him under the sand, and then he goes on the run to a place called Midian. And then 40 years he's there for, he marries, you read, he has children. And then God reveals himself to Moses. And then God commissions Moses. He commissions him to go back to Egypt, to go back to Egypt to free God's people, Israel. And Moses, as we meet him, specifically in these first few chapters, he seems very unsure. He's, he's a little bit insecure. He's not sure if he can speak well enough. So, so God sends him with his brother Aaron to speak for him. And they go, as God commands, to Israel. And they speak these words, the words of God to Israel. And they do signs that God tells them to do. And the chapter ends with Israel believing God and worshipping. is a bit of a high point up to now. We pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a fast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you are a God who speaks, that you are speaking to us right now, right here today. Father, you are present with us right now, right here today. And we pray that you would again fill our hearts afresh with your word, fill our hearts afresh with life, 
Fill us, Father, we pray. Increase in us, we pray, Father. Help us to hear your voice, to marvel at what you have done for us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so first of all, what we're going to see, there's a people in slavery. So as we just heard, Moses and Aaron, they, they go to Pharaoh with that message, let my people go so they may serve me. It's a message from God. And Pharaoh, he actually says no, and he gives a reason for saying no. He says, I don't know this God that you speak of. You see, for Pharaoh, they had many perceived gods in Egypt. Pharaoh himself believed that he was a God. All the kings of Egypt, they believed themselves to be God. So what's going on here? We've got like a bit of a face-off. The Pharaoh thinks he is, he is a God standing up to God. And that's really important for us as we look at the flow of Exodus. It's important for us to see what happens through Exodus and happens what happens through Exodus in this, this knowing God. See, Exodus primarily is a story of God making himself known. It kind of bookends our passage here at the beginning with Pharaoh saying he doesn't know God. And again in chapter 7 verse 5, where God tells the Egyptians that he is going to declare himself and make himself known. And then what we see, these signs and wonders, what he's doing, he's showing Israel, he is showing Egypt, he is showing the world that he is God. But Pharaoh right here is proud. Pharaoh is rebellious. Pharaoh is sinful. He says to them, these aren't your people. These are my people. And then what happens as we move from, from verse 6 all the way down to verse 19, what we see is the oppression and slavery of God's people in all its depravity. Pharaoh gets really angry. And what he does, he takes his anger and he puts it on God's people. people. You see, the work that God's people were doing in Egypt was, it seems to be brick-making from this account, which is really important in, in Egypt. Egypt needed millions of bricks for the palaces, the administrative buildings, the residencies that they all lived in. They were all made of brick. And the way that they did it, they would have quotas. They would work as a system. You see it in the historical documents. They worked through quotas. And they would have a workforce structure. So the Egyptians would be the taskmasters over the work. And then they would have the Israelite foremen who would re relate to them to the slaves. But these conditions were incredibly hard. Out all day, 100 degrees heat. There'd be no coverage on their body, just a small kilt. Their hands would be shredded to bits. They would get very, very, very little food and very little drink. Many of them died of dehydration and heat stroke. And what Pharaoh does, he tells the overseers, he says, make them get the straw themselves. This is really, really bad. You see, the straw at the time was so important for making bricks. It was important for actually keeping the bricks together. You had to have it. It was provided, but Pharaoh says, now go and get it yourself. That's a big task. That's a whole different industry, which takes a huge amount of time. But he also says to them, the quota is not going to be changed. Produce the same amount. See, that quota was already difficult to reach. It was already the quota of a slave driver. Now it's become impossible because they're going to have, no one go, they're going to, have no, to go now and find all the straw, to set up systems to find the straw, to collect it, to gather it, to make it in the right size, to put it in the right place. And they tried, Israel tried, but they just couldn't do it. And what happens is the slaves and the foremen, and the leaders, they get beaten for it. This is brutal what's being described here. So the foremen, the, the leaders of the, the slaves, they, they in desperation, they go to Pharaoh and they appeal to him. They're like, why are you doing this? This is impossible. 
They're beating us for it, and it's not our fault. It's their fault for telling us to do this impossible work. What they didn't realize was this was Pharaoh's order. And how he responds, he responds with an insult. He says, you know what, you're lazy. This is your problem. Go, do more. I demand more. You're lying about your God. You're lazy. Go and make my bricks. No straw will be provided for you. And at this, the leaders of Israel's people, they know they're in deep, 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 deep trouble. But just look how they respond, verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They don't blame the Pharaoh and the others. They actually go and blame Moses and Aaron. They blame God's leaders. They say to God's leaders, this is your fault. You made us think. You made this happen. Forgetting that actually God had already said that this would happen. You see, oppression, slavery, suffering, sin, even is difficult to navigate emotionally, relationally, spiritually. In verse 15, just a few verses before, we see that they'd already gone to Pharaoh. They'd gone to the wrong person. They turned to the cause of their slavery for help. But where does Moses turn? Verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. So Moses, faced with the, the hostility and blame and hatred from the people that he's been called to lead, I think possibly struggling, as you see this, with maybe his own discontentment, his own impatience with God, his own unbelief. He turns to God, showing that he doesn't understand what's going on, forgetting what God has already told him in chapter 3, that this would happen. But he still takes his question to God. He still takes his question to God. He reminds God of his promises. He reminds God of what he has said. He actually begins on one level, as we see this grow throughout this book, he begins to intercede. He begins to, to plead on, on behalf of God's people to God. See, when we don't understand God's purposes, when we don't understand God's plan, when we don't understand God's timing, we're still to turn to him. He's the only place we can turn. Let me just pause for, for a minute here. You see, slavery uh, of Israel, as, as Tom was saying before and explaining to us, it's a vivid picture of our own slavery to sin. Sin, folks, is a harsh, brutal, cruel, and demanding taskmaster. Sin being our own rebellion against God. Seen in, in turning to other things instead of God, or, or turning to other things to provide that only God can provide, living outside of God and his will and his way. And this looks different in different people's lives. One area where I think we see the extremes of this, and we can see how this works out, is in, in addiction. Maybe how people use drink and, and food and drugs. You can see a, an ever-increasing demand. You can see like an inner destruction on people's lives of more and more. You can see people's humanity slowly being torn apart and destroyed bit by bit. And even in suffering and pain, what we do, we can turn to the cause of that slavery. When times are hard, we can turn to that same drink that's actually made our lives hard. 
When hard times come, drink, food, drugs, whatever it is, become the place that we seek comfort from. But I think, folks, with that extreme example, I think we can also step back a bit and see that the same concepts in turn into the wrong thing, filtered into other areas of our lives. We can reject what God says about himself and how he relates to us. And instead, what we can do is look to other things in place of God. And those things shape our lives. It could be a, a lack of trust in God and seeking security in something else. Folks, you can never be secure enough. If you think that your security, your family security, financial security, physical security, health, all of those things depends on you, you're going to spend every single day in the rest of your life in anxiety and fear. It's going to consume you. It's going to wake you up. It's going to dominate how you make decisions. It's going to affect your relationships. It's going to pour down into your children. I remember when I've shared this with many people. I went through some difficult things last week and last year, sorry, and went to see a counselor. And um, I always get laughed at on one level because I have a tendency to go back and check the door or check the gas. I once went on holiday, right? And as I was driving on the holiday, Steve phones me up on the way and says, I think I've just seen your door open. As a joke, that wrecked the first three days of my holiday. I'm the kind of guy who will go back, check the door, Joe back at the door. And I spoke about this to the counselor, said, what's going on here? And he says, okay, you need to speak to yourself. You, remind, you need to remind yourself of who your God is. Who is your father? Who is your God? How do you walk in trust in those moments when you are drawn towards fear and anxiety? Because it consumes us. It could be an ambition for success. It could be ambition or success, sorry. And that desire to prove yourself in a workspace, to get more money, to be more successful, it's never going to be satisfied. There's always going to be that next step. There's always going to be that next job. It could be people-pleasing or affirmation. That is such shaky and rubbish ground to stand on because you always need the next affirmation. The last affirmation is never good enough. You always need the next one. You always need the next one. Never sure if you're really in the in crowd or if you're just on isolated on the edge as you always were. Maybe it's a striving for physical beauty. It's a never-ending treadmill of having to look the right way. The culture says, look like this. And then it keeps going and keeps moving and keeps changing what that looks like. I taught for 20 years in the local comp. And I used to be a head of, head of year. And I was a head of year with one, one year eight girl who was really troubled. She came on into school one day. Um, we had parents that brought her in because she had scratched in with a knife the word perfect down her arm. She just could not be perfect. It was distorting her, what she was seeing and what she was having to live up to. It is consuming. Sin and these desires, they are harsh taskmasters. They demand more and we need freedom from it. And sadly, folks, I think we can also see this in, in this context of how it relates to our relationship with God. We think that God is that same harsh taskmaster. You've got to prove yourself. You've got to be better. You've got to do more for me. That's what we think God is saying. And that's not true. So what do we do? And that's where this next chapter shows how and where true freedom. Okay, true freedom is found. But let me just say this because I think this chapter shows us. True freedom is given. Given. Because number two, we have a God who redeems. And through chapter six and verse one to five, what we find is he reminds Moses again. He says to him, I am God. In fact, three times through this whole section, verse 2, verse 7, verse 8, it's bookended and right in the middle, he says, I am God. 
That same God that we talked about in chapter, chapter 3. I am the God who is infinite, eternal, all-powerful, all-consuming, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. I am God. I am the God who is. And I'm making myself known. Pharaoh's not God. These Egyptian gods, they're not God. I am God. And he reminds Moses again of, of, of Isaac and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the way that God has spoken to his ancestors, the promises that he's made. He says, you're going to see how I'm going to keep those promises. I'm the God who moves in history. I've heard my people. I know. Moses, I'm dealing with it, is what he's saying. And then verse 6 to 8, which I really want us to slow down on, to pause, to focus in on, and to read slowly, because I think this is the heartbeat of the passage and the whole point of what's going on here, the whole point of the Exodus and the whole point of life, which is that God is the hero of the story. 17 times in these passages, we are gonna read, God says, I. Seven times he says, I will. And there are four big areas of promise that he makes that reveal his character. Let's read it together, verse six, chapter six, verse six. Say therefore, this is God speaking, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptian. Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Verse 6, what's he saying? These four promises. First of all, verse 6, he says, He is the God who sets the captive free. He says, I'll bring you out from under those burdens. I will deliver you from slavery. So who is he? He is the God who saves. Salvation here is being freed from slavery. He is the God who saves. Verse 6, he is the God who promises to redeem. What does that mean? To redeem. See, redeem means to release a slave by the payment of a ransom, by the payment of a price. God is saying, I am a redeeming God. God is a God who pays the price so that his people can go free. He's revealing his character to us. And his character is revealed in how he moves towards his people and how he acts on behalf of his people. Verse 7, he promises to adopt. This is not just a, a random act of kindness here. God is actually saying specifically, you're my people, I am your God. What this is here, this is adopting language. We're reading an act of fatherly care. God is showing himself to be an adopting father. Verse 8. What's he doing? What's he promising? He's promising to provide for his people. And there's a specificity. I don't even know how to say that word, but you know what it means. There's a specificity here. A place. Go really slow. Look it up for yourselves. <laughs> there is a place. There is a land that is theirs. He's given them a home. He's given them a place of blessing. He's given them a place of safety. These are wandering slaves. They could be a people here with their God. That's what he's saying. God is revealing himself. He's saying, I am a providing God. 
Look how God is revealing himself to his people here. He is a promise maker and he is a promise keeper. He is a God who is able because he is God. And he is revealing himself to be the God who is a God who is a savior, a redeemer, a doctor, and a provider. And he's saying they're going to see it. You're going to see it. The whole world is going to see it. And you're going to know me and how I act on behalf of this people. Let me read verse 9. Big contrast. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their, their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Do you see the contrast there? A God who is able, a God who is able and a people who aren't. They're so oppressed. They are so bowed down under their slavery. They are so broken. They, they can't do it themselves. They're unable to get freedom on their own. They can't even hear at this point the promises of freedom and life. They don't respond rightly to them. The voice of sin, the noise of sin, the noise of suffering and pain, it's so loud that they can't hear the words of grace here. They need God to move, to redeem, to free, to adopt, and to provide. And then in verse 10 to 13 of chapter 6, God tells Moses again, go, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. What does Moses do? On one level, it's awkward. But I, I, have to sh I have to share, I love this bit. I genuinely do. Let me read verse 12 with you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Even after all of this, Moses is still, he's crumbling a bit and he's worried a bit. But where's he going? He's still going to God. God is still with him. God is graciously leading him through this. God says, verse 13 again, You have your task. You have your words. You have your command. Go. At this point, Moses just needs to be told, Go in obedience. And then we see a specific plan through a specific people. You see, the story up to this point, chapter 6 now, we followed it each week, haven't we? And it's almost like this story is built up. It's moved along really quickly in parts, and then really slowly, but it's built, and it's built. And we've got this crescendo moment when it's like Moses is sent out, and then all of a sudden you're kind of waiting for this crescendo moment, and then, whoa, stop. Something strange happens. You're expecting high drama and God's mighty acts, but we get a genealogy a list of people. See, for us reading this, this is strange. We're like, what? Why put this here? This doesn't make sense in our storytelling. But for the original readers, this makes perfect sense. This is really important for them on a number of levels. So what's the point here? Why does Moses drop into a genealogy here? And what is he highlighting for us? What is he showing us here that's important? So let me highlight a few things for us. And then can I encourage you, please read this at home. Just because it's a genealogy doesn't mean we don't read it. There's so much gold here. There's so much truth here. Now it's noticeable that not all of the 12 tribes, which came from the 12 sons of, of Jacob, are here. See verse 14 and 15, you get two verses. And it describes Reuben first of all, then it describes Simeon. Now they're the two oldest. So you've got the two oldest, and they just get one verse each, okay? Here's Reuben, it's Simeon, and he moves quickly through them. But then he gets to, the, to Levi, the third oldest. He gets there and he pauses. And what we get there is 10 verses on Levi. Why? Because Levi, Levi is the tribe of Aaron and Moses. See what Moses is doing here. This genealogy is helping us understand who Aaron was. 
Moses has already explained and, and, and showed who he is. He's now showing us who Aaron was. He's kind of given us Moses, Aaron's family tree, both Aaron's ancestors, but also his children. And it's really important because the, the tribe of Levi, as we're going to see as we roll through this series in the next few months, they play a huge role in Exodus, really important role in, in Exodus. And Aaron himself, he goes on, as we see, to become the first high priest. It's really important for the rest of the story. But look how Moses ends his genealogy, verse 26 to 27. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord says, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. Moses is helping us. He's basically saying, God is working his redemption through these people. These people. God has a specific plan through a specific person and a specific people. And then Moses, verse 28 and 20 to 30, at the end of this chapter, he does it again. He pushes back one last time. So how's Pharaoh going to even listen to me? And in chapter 7, verse 1 to 7, what we, says, God, what we get is God saying, you will do this. He has reminded him, God has reminded Moses time and time and again. And what I pick up from this is God being gracious and patient with Moses, helping him, shaping him, disciple him effectively in gentleness and tenderness and patience, walking with him through every step, through every fear, through every doubt, knowing when to wait, knowing when to be quiet, knowing when to step in, knowing when to push, knowing when to command. God helps Moses grow in his faith and grow in his obedience. And this passage that we're working through today ends in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 7. With these incredible, incredible words. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old. And Aaron, 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. They did it. They went. Just as the Lord commanded. Wow. I just love this. What grace. What a story, folks. Don't miss this. What a story to even get him to this point. It's an 80-year-old bloke and his 83-year-old brother stepping forward, taking ground for Jesus. This is incredible. And the God who's taken it this far will finish what he said he'd do with an 80-year-old man and his 83-year-old kid brother. Step forward, stepping out in obedience to God's will. See, what we see here is the story of God moving in power to free, to redeem, to adopt his people. What we have here, folks, is a salvation story. And it's here to show us and to help us understand the salvation story. It's showing us God's ultimate salvation. It's pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, everything here, I think specifically through the book of Exodus, it's so formative for us to understand what happened in this historical account it's so important, so helpful for us to understand who Jesus is and who we are and what he has done. You see, Jesus, he is the prophet who didn't just speak the word of God, but he was the word of God. Jesus is the promised king. You see, you look at this genealogy, there are two people mentioned, Aminadab and Narshan in verse 23 here. Now, the grandson, they were grandfathers. For, they were, Narshan was a grandfather of a guy called Boaz, who's in the line of King David. And in Matthew chapter 1 to 4, another genealogy, these genealogies are important to ground this story, to ground what's going on here. We read these guys that are in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus is our great high priest. Not only the representative, but he actually takes his people into God's presence. See, these I will statements that God has made here, what we do, we, we actually see them being unfolded, as it were, throughout the book of Exodus. But that last unfolding of these promises waits until the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells us that all the promises of God find their yes and our men in him. Jesus Christ is the one who sets the captive free. If you read your gospels, you actually see that he declares that, he speaks that. He is the one who came to set the captives free. Jesus Christ is the one who redeems. How does he redeem? Bible tells us that all people are under bondage. All people are under the slavery of sin. All people have rejected God. All are oppressed. All are bowed down under burdens they can't carry. You see, humanity needs liberating from slavery to sin. And like we read here with Israel, we can't do it ourselves. We can't free ourselves from sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin, the punishments of sin, the outworking of our slavery to sin. So God had to do it. God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to free his people. He came from heaven to earth, into the brokenness, into the sin, the darkness and slavery and oppression, into Egypt. And he went to the cross, taking our sins upon himself, took the punishment for our sins upon himself. He was judged, the Bible tells us, in our place. He paid the price for our sin. There's this great exchange that we see in the Gospels. His perfect life for our sinful one. And in that great exchange, what happens is we get his righteousness and his perfection. He dies in our place. And then three days later, we read that he rose and declared victory. Victory over sin, victory over death, and victory over the devil. In Christ, folks, we are free. Let me say that again, and I pray that you believe that. If you don't believe that, please pray right now and ask for God's help in believing that. If you're not a Christian, please pray that. Folks, but if you are a Christian, can you pray that yourself now? Ask for God's help to believe that you are free. Because even though we are, sometimes we don't live like it. We wrap ourselves sometimes in the chains of slavery. He is our redeemer. He has paid the price, everything that needed to be paid, totally and utterly gone. You don't pay anything. You don't have to. You never will have to. He has paid it. You are free because of him. If you don't believe this today, folks, this is an invitation. I hold my arms open here now to show that the Father himself opens his arms to you in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, will you accept this invitation today? Will you listen to his voice? God's voice is calling you. You don't have to be a slave anymore. You don't have to be a slave anymore. Would you turn? Would you listen? Would you hear? Would you respond to this message of freedom? Freedom from sin is all found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can trust him because he is God. He is able. He is the God who is. Christians, can I use this phrase? It was a throwaway phrase as I was doing my, my, my planning this morning. I thought, actually, that's really helpful for me. 
Can I give you a few home truths? And what I mean by home truths, it's not lies. It's not the lies of the devil, the lies of the culture that come from outside, but home truths, the truths that come right from God himself. And let me give you some home truths. You are forgiven. You're forgiven. You are free from your guilt. Why? Because he's taken it on himself. The price has been paid. There is no condemnation in Christ. No condemnation. That's what the Gospels tell us. That's what the Bible tells us. There is no condemnation for you in Christ. It's all gone. Leave your guilt behind. Please hear this. Christian, let go of your guilt. Walk it to the cross. Leave it at the foot of the cross and let him deal with it because he's dealt with it. Walk in the freedom that he says he gives you. Christian, you were adopted into the family of God. In the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a father in heaven. You have. You have a father in heaven. You have been brought into the family of God. Do you know what the father calls you? Child. Beloved. He loves you. You have a father that you can turn to anytime, anywhere. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you've wrapped yourself up in that you can't get yourself out of, I just pray that this morning you would hear these words of truth that the Father says, come to me. I know. I'm your father. I'm your child. I love you. I will walk that path with you. I will help you walk with that and deal with that. You have a father who loves you. He always has and he always will. Christian, you have a father who provides. If God has given you his son, the treasure of heaven, if he's given you his son, how much will he provide the stuff, the things of tomorrow? How much? He's given you his son. Trust him. He will provide. He will protect you. He will keep you. And he will guard you. Israel had this promised land that we read of here. And we read through this account. We have a living hope, Peter tells us. That the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is in the very presence of the Father now. Humanity is in the presence of Father now. And he is interceding for us right now. He is praying for us right now. He is praying for me. He is praying for you right now through this. Right here this morning. Jesus Christ is interceding for you. And he's coming back. The Bible tells us he's preparing a place. A new creation. A place of safety, a place of plenty, a place of blessing, a place where we will be home with God forever. God has done it. God has done it. He is our saving, redeeming, adopting, providing Father God. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that today. And I don't know about you, but I think I need to hear this every single day. Because if I believe this, my life would look totally different every day. We need God's help to turn back to these truths. A God who says, I am the Lord. I am the God who is. I am the God of the past, the present, and the future. What a comfort. I don't know if you are watching the news or reading the news or reading the papers, but what a comfort to know that is our God with the current newsreel that we have. There's no need to be scared because he says, I am the sovereign God. I am the God who is. And as we head now into a time of, of communion, this is really important to us, folks, really important. Because during this time, God is, is still speaking to us. He's still ministering to us. The people of Israel, we read this account, and what do we hear? They forgot 
They forgot God's words. They turned to the, the cause of their slavery, even though they'd heard God's word of freedom. They were burdened. They were turning back. I don't know what this looks like for you. Some of you I do. Many of you I don't. I don't know what enslaves you. I don't know what it is that you turn to. I don't know what it is that the, the chains that you, even though you've been freed from them, you reach and actually, for some strange reason, get some comfort from wrapping yourself up in them, even though they are heavy and they hurt, and you know they are doing damage. See, this is an opportunity to confess those things in freedom, to truly confess, knowing that you've been forgiven of those things. This is given to us by God so graciously. Why? Because we forget. We are like God's people here. We forget. We need to be reminded of God's character, God's promises, who he is, who we are in him daily. And we need it weekly here as we gather as a church family. If you're not a believer here today, we ask that you would let this pass. The Bible says that this is for, for those who believe. It's going to be a couple of slides I'll put up in a minute, but the second slide, which will go up halfway through communion, will be a prayer for you. If you want to pray, and please come and speak to us. But as believers, what I want us to do as we take this is take it. Confess of your sins. Ask for God's help. If you want to pray together, pray together. If you want to take this to God yourself, take this to God yourself. Pray for God's help in walking in obedience. There'll be some sentences on the screen which I've written off the back of just working through this sentence. If you could put those up for us, please, Vanda. You have no need to give in to sin because God says, I have freed you from sin's power. You have no need to fear death because God has conquered the grave. You have no need to carry guilt because he says, I have redeemed you. I have paid the price. You have no need to feel shame because he says, you're my child. I love you. You have no need to worry about the future because he says, I will provide for you every day of your life. We have a God who says, I am the God who saves, who redeems, who adopts, and who provides. So as you take communion, please, can I ask that you would confess? Look at these sentences. And if there's an area here that you want to pray through, pray through. Ask for God's help in walking this in freedom. And as we close, realize that we also have a, a God who says to us, child, child, now I send you. Read the story of Moses, don't we? And these words of freedom. He says to us, I send you. You're my ambassador. In your weakness, in your vulnerability, in your inadequacy, I choose to send you. I am giving you this message of freedom. I'm giving you this message of salvation. I'm giving you this message of hope. Go and tell everyone. Go and tell everyone. Use my words. Go in my power because I'm with you. Proclaim this gospel truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the point and purpose of your life. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace towards us in Jesus. Father, I thank you that we see your character through these verses. Father, thank you that we see your character revealed in your words. We see your character revealed in how you act on behalf of your people. 
And Father, as we take this bread and this wine, Father, as we, we hold it, as we confess, as we ask for help, as we pray through these things, as we pass even one to another, Father, with this tangible reminder that we are holding, with this reminder that we are passing around, with this reminder that we are taking, with this reminder that we see each and every one person here taking it, would, would Father, you help us, I pray, be reminded that you have given us the words of life, that you have acted, that you have moved towards us, that you have displayed everything that we have read about in the giving of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in love he gave himself for us. Fill our hearts with love, I pray. Fill our hearts with boldness, I pray. Fill our hearts with hope and peace and joy and life as we take this. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness. Thank you that he fills us in our emptiness. We thank you that he lifts up our eyes to remind us again and again and again of the goodness of your grace towards us in and through your son, Jesus. We praise you. Amen.